on my father's side there's my uncle who has schizophrenia but there's also um asperger's autism as well and i remember asking my parents when i was about 10 11 i said i can see his symptoms i feel like there's something a bit off about me too and my mom said oh you're just dramatic <laughs> uh, and i am but i was just i i was conscious that there's a little bit of era irregularity in me as well based off of having a brother with Asperger's. I don't know if that's really linked but it just it it signaled me at that age. My name is Phaedra Aldridge. Welcome to Look Again Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast about mental illness brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and our BC partner organizations. Throughout this season, we have taken a deeper look into serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia and have talked to quite a few professionals and family members on this subject. But what if I told you that schizophrenia symptoms are also experienced by people with autism? Even more revealing, people with autism are at a higher risk of developing schizophrenia. Research has shown that 70% of people with autism have at least one mental health problem, with 50% having two or more. Today, many professionals in the autism community are calling for change to how they approach clinical care. Some believe that mental health assessments should be an integral part of treating people with autism, and no one understands the value behind these assessments more than my guest today. I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Amos, who is a clinician scientist, psychiatrist, and the associate director at the Kundil Center for Children and Youth Depression in Toronto. It's a pleasure to meet you. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Phaedra. Dr. Amos, based on our conversations with people living with schizophrenia and other family members, we have started hearing more and more that autism and schizophrenia have very similar symptoms. In fact, it took the medical community quite a while to separate the two. Up until the 1940s, autism was actually considered a feature and a symptom of schizophrenia. Can you tell us a little bit more about the origins of how the two started off so entwined, but then became two separate illnesses. Sure. So even the word autism, its origins came from schizophrenia. It was a German psychiatrist in 1911 named Eugen Bloiler that coined the term autism. And autism was describing in schizophrenia individuals who had excessive hallucinations, a very large sort of fantasy life. And it was in the 1940s that Leo Connor, who was an American psychiatrist, started to describe individuals who had autism spectrum disorder, but at the time was calling it autism. So the word autism actually came to have a different definition uh, by Leo Connor, which was describing children who really had the absence of an inner symbolic life. In the 1950s, autism was part of the diagnosis of schizophrenia. If you saw a child who had the symptoms of autism, it would be called a schizophrenic reaction with a childhood label. In the 50s and 60s, a psychologist named Bruno Bettelheim started 
to popularize the notion that autism was caused by cold parenting, so-called refrigerator mother. And it wasn't until the 60s and 70s that uh, the biological underpinnings of autism were better known. And it wasn't until the 1980s that there was a separate label of autism distinct from schizophrenia that was part of our book of diagnoses in psychiatry. That wasn't that long ago. So what do scientists believe now about these two conditions and them being linked, if at all, Stephanie? So part of the quest to understand autism more has been looking at genetic underpinnings of autism. And in that quest, hundreds of genes have been found that are associated with autism, some of which have also been associated with schizophrenia. So there is a shared genetic risk for autism and schizophrenia. We also know that individuals with autism have an increased risk of developing schizophrenia later in life. So whereas the general population prevalence of schizophrenia is somewhere under 1%, about 0.7% or so, in autism, the prevalence of schizophrenia is more like 5 or 6%. And then if you look at individuals in adulthood who have schizophrenia or autism, they also have some overlap in terms of cognitive challenges, especially in the social cognitive domain, that is social processing, detecting emotions, thinking about other people's perspectives. So you don't see a lot of differentiation there. But exactly what's shared about these two conditions, we have some sense, but there's still a lot of work to be done to figure out how does a similar genetic risk, let's say, push one individual to develop autism and another individual to develop uh, schizophrenia later in life. Now, we know with schizophrenia, there's positive symptoms such as hallucinations. And you were just talking about negative symptoms and cognitive losses with individuals with autism. Are you seeing an overlap as a clinician and a researcher between the positive or the negative symptoms of schizophrenia with people with autism? Because it is difficult to disentangle the negative symptoms, they're different in terms of their timing of onset and some of the quality, but there's a lot of similarity. For autism, a lot of the diagnosis is based on social communication impairment, where you have difficulty with sharing, responding to others, having back and forth conversation, nonverbal communication, the change in the tone of the voice to convey different messaging and making, understanding, maintaining relationships. So that is a huge part of autism. It has its onset in early life. Schizophrenia has negative symptoms that have an onset most often in the teenage years or in, in early adulthood. But what tends to be present as part of these negative symptoms is diminished emotional expression, diminished interest in social interactions. And so you can see there what the overlap is. The timing is different, and sometimes the quality is somewhat different, but it can be very difficult to tease those things apart, especially if you're seeing somebody in adulthood and you don't know what happened prior to. That's where the negative symptoms are overlapping. But you cannot have schizophrenia in somebody with autism without positive symptoms. And so 
that's because it's so difficult to disentangle the negative symptoms. So you cannot get a diagnosis of schizophrenia in somebody with autism unless you have prominent delusions or hallucinations. And now, Dr. Amos, you and your team wrote a paper for The Lancet, and you hypothesized that autism increases the risk of developing a major psychiatric disorder. I would love to hear more about the findings and your hypothesis. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned in your introduction, individuals with autism, they tend to have more than one diagnosis. Those can be medical diagnoses or mental health diagnoses. It seems that a majority of individuals with autism spectrum disorder will develop what we call a co-occurring mental health condition at some point in time. And and many individuals have more than one co-occurring mental health condition with anxiety, depression, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder being common. And we knew this and we wanted to fine tune and make it more precise in terms of what the prevalence is of these different conditions. And part of that is because it can be difficult to measure and accurately diagnose these co-occurring conditions, the symptoms of autism and the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. That overlap can lead to a lot of ambiguity in diagnosis. So my colleague and I worked very closely with him on this study where we looked across the research. So we found that across a number of different psychiatric diagnoses or or how we call co-occurring mental health conditions in autism, we see higher prevalence than in the general population. So if you look at anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, attention deficit hyperactivity disorders, so-called disruptive behavior disorders, sleep problems, schizophrenia spectrum, and bipolar disorders. So we see higher prevalence across the board of a number of different co-occurring mental health conditions. And so the question is, why do we see this higher prevalence across the board in individuals with autism spectrum disorder? Part of it is is likely biological in terms of having more of a genetic risk that leads to increased rates of autism spectrum disorder, which changes the way that the brain develops. And our brains are not categorized according to these kinds of disorders. We have systems that are overlapping. It may also be that individuals with autism spectrum disorder, they have hard experiences. They are exposed to more bullying, more negative interactions socially, and that might increase risk for some disorders as well. So both environmental as well as biological is what you're saying. Yeah. And there's there's still the issue that we're imprecise in terms of being able to accurately diagnose these different disorders. And maybe it doesn't matter that much. The most important thing is to know that individuals with ASD have more of these symptoms. And and we really need to make sure that we're looking out for them and that we're developing interventions that are appropriate and we're managing those symptoms because those are symptoms and co-occurring mental health conditions that can, as people develop across the lifespan, have huge impact on their ability to function, their ability to hold down a job, to be independent. And it must be extremely difficult to diagnose people, especially with those dual diagnoses. It can be very tricky. We talked a little bit about the overlap in presentation that makes it tricky. Timing can make it tricky. So if you have somebody who presents to you in early development, 
it's easier to figure out what came beforehand. If you see somebody who's four or five, the parent is usually part of the assessment and can talk to you about early development. Similarly, in early and middle childhood, once somebody becomes an adult, it can be very difficult to remember what came before. And that can make the diagnosis very tricky. Also, some individuals with schizophrenia, as time goes on, it's harder to get in touch with caregivers because they've disengaged. And the other thing that makes it difficult is because communication difficulties are a part of autism spectrum disorders, it can be really difficult to ask them about their experiences and make sure you're getting accurate information. If I ask somebody with some communication difficulties, if they hear voices, they might say, yeah, I hear voices on the radio. And so you have to be really careful about making sure that you're not misinterpreting. And once again, the importance of having that strong support system and family members that are advocating for the individual with the mental illness. Based on your research, I know you'd like to see mental health assessments be an integral part of clinical care for people with autism. So I'm curious, why isn't this in place already? It just seems obvious to me that this would be in place right now. Part of it is because of a lack of awareness. Most of the autism research and the evolution in diagnosis has been fairly recent. And it's also a fairly recent thing that we are much more aware of the increased prevalence of co-occurring mental health conditions in young people with autism and adults. We don't even have any research really about what happens later in life in individuals with autism. It's only now or in the last, let's say, five to 10 years that researchers have shifted their focus to include young adults and adults on the autism spectrum. So part of that is why mental health is not an integral part of care, because care for autism has really been focused on early development. We also have fragmented services um, that organize around diagnoses. Because of that, our mental health professionals become highly specialized, and they know one diagnosis really, really well. And sometimes there's less experience and expertise knowing about the overlap. You're listening to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and BC Partner Organizations. I'm your host, Phaedra Aldridge. This podcast would not be possible without the support of the entire community. From the bottom of our hearts, we want to thank you for caring about mental illness. Together, we truly can make a difference. Welcome back to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined. We're back with Dr. Stephanie Amos to talk about the very unique relationship between autism and schizophrenia. In a previous episode, I had the chance to talk to a woman we called Jean to protect her identity. She has a brother with a dual diagnosis. Jean's brother is on the autism spectrum. And when the pandemic first hit, she noticed other signs that something was wrong with her brother. Something more than his autism. Let's take a listen. Around last summer, he told me that people on social media were making death threats. Well, that was his reality. He was living that clear as day. They were going to kill him. And, you know, as a, as a sister... 
here I was, you know, oh, tell me about this, you know, show me the screenshots. Who is this person? I'm going to go beat them up for you, right? And it was very hard to verify, you know, online. Things are always kind of like you're not really sure what's going on. And it was only when he had progressed to the point where he was curled up inside, too scared to go on the internet, too scared to go outside, sleeping all the time, and he couldn't even bring himself to eat by himself. He couldn't shower, brush his teeth. I was like, I was trying to figure out, Google, Google these symptoms. What is this? What is happening to him? Right? When we said, okay, we need to, to somehow get you to a hospital because there, you've gotten to a point where you're unable to take care of yourself. And um, that was when uh, we were able to get a diagnosis. I think there should be more awareness among the people in the autism spectrum community that some of the things that they might be experiencing when the child has progressed to a teenager could, could maybe, symptoms of schizophrenia. So Dr. Amos, based on your clinical experience and your research, are you surprised at all to hear Jean's story? It sounds like a story that is very reflective of the time course of autism and the time course of, of schizophrenia. I didn't quite hear when the onset was, but what you would expect to hear is somebody has an autism spectrum disorder from an early developmental period, and then sometime in late teens or early adulthood, they start to experience hallucinations, delusions, and that marks a shift, marks a change in, in their presentation where they're starting to express the symptoms of schizophrenia. It sounds fairly similar to many of the young people that I've experienced, that I've uh, spoken to and, and assessed that have both diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And now for people who do have both diagnoses, what treatments are available? So the way that we treat our mental health conditions tends to be we have treatments that are specific to a diagnosis. Interestingly, the mainstay uh, treatment for schizophrenia are antipsychotic medications, which help with the positive symptoms of schizophrenia, so the delusions, the hallucinations. The antipsychotics are actually the only medication that are approved, not in Canada, but in the U.S. by the Food and Drug Association, that they are the only medications that are actually approved for autism. Antipsychotics are used often in autism, not to treat psychosis, but to treat irritability. So it would be the same medications that somebody like Jean's brother would be offered to treat some of the positive symptoms that they're developing for schizophrenia. That is so fascinating, Dr. Amos. I had never heard of antipsychotic medications are not used to treat the symptoms, but the irritability and almost a side effect of having autism. We don't have any medications that treat the core symptoms of autism. Many people on the autism spectrum wouldn't want uh, medications that treat the core symptoms of autism because it's part of who they are. What we do have are medications. Some of them are evidence-based. We still have a limited number of studies that actually look at medications and what the effects and side effects are in individuals with autism. But where we do have medications, they don't treat core symptoms. They treat symptoms that are co-occurring. 
and part of the presentation that impair functioning. So we have evidence-based treatments for irritability. Irritability is kind of a catch-all that includes self-injury or aggression towards others, which can be a huge problem in terms of making sure that someone can maintain their schooling, for instance, in individuals with autism. We have medications that treat ADHD symptoms, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder symptoms. We have some evidence that they work in children who have autism and ADHD. And that's really what we're working with. Many of the medications that we use in autism are off-label. So we use selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors to help with depression and anxiety, but we don't have evidence that really indicates clearly that those symptoms respond to those medications when you're treating individuals who have both autism and a co-occurring anxiety or depressive disorder. How can the medical community, so people such as yourself, in your opinion, better treat children and adults with both autism and schizophrenia? I think there's three pieces that we need to do. One is improving access and improving inclusion. So we still have these services that are organized around diagnoses. I think that has to change because just the structure of having services around a diagnosis means you have inclusion and exclusion criteria. And so for individuals with autism, where they're seeking mental health services, there has historically often been an exclusion of autism. So you can come for an anxiety disorder treatment, but if you have autism, you can't come. That's getting better, but it's still there when we're talking about mental health services. We need to enhance capacity. So that means that some of that hyper-specialization that especially we, we see in academic communities, we need to enhance capacity. So individuals who do adult care need to know about early developmental disorders and folks who do child and youth psychiatry, they need to know about how these shifts can happen to help with recognition for somebody like Jean's brother. And then we need to think about mental health services according to need not diagnosis necessarily. I mean, that has to be part of our consideration, but there are lots with autism spectrum disorder who need supports, but they can do very, very well with some supports, not intensive supports, but some supports. Whereas there are some individuals who really have intense need. And the, the same thing with schizophrenia, there's a huge amount of variability in presentation. So we need to organize our mental health services less around diagnosis and more around need. Dr. Amos, we will certainly be following up with you in the future. There's no doubt about that with all this exciting research. And I just really want to thank you for joining us today. And I'm very grateful that I had the chance to speak with you to hear more about your research and the valuable contribution that you're making both within the autism community and for people living with serious mental illness. So thank you. Thank you, it was such a pleasure to be here. And a huge thank you to you, our audience, for joining us today. Together, we truly can change the narrative around mental illnesses like schizophrenia, and we can really start to deal with the many myths and the stereotypes that still exist today. If you have any questions or comments, tweet us at BC Schizophrenia. And to get our latest podcast episodes, be sure to hit follow on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Talk to you soon. This podcast is brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and the BC Partners for Mental Health and Substance Use Information. We're a group of nonprofit agencies providing good quality information to help individuals and families maintain or improve their mental well-being. The BC Partners members are Anxiety Canada, BC Schizophrenia Society, Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, Canadian Mental Health Association's BC Division, Family Smart, Jesse's Legacy, the North Shore Family Services Program, and Mood Disorders Association of BC, a branch of Lookout Housing and Health Society. The BC Partners are funded and stewarded by BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, an agency of the Provincial Health Services Authority. For more information, visit heretohelp.bc.ca.